I don't know that I've ever been around so many talented people. I could take about another 30 minutes of that. <laughs> well, it is an honor and a privilege to be in the Lord's house with you today. If you will, go ahead and open to Ezekiel 37. And while you're getting there, this is an odd chapter for Christmas. But this is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. And with that, I'm going to do my very best to edit it down. So let's pray and let's dive right in. God, you are kind to us. You are king. Lord, I pray that we would see this picture of your new covenant promise. God, I pray that you would let us see that the hope is not just that Jesus would come, but when Jesus comes, he would bring the Holy Spirit who would give us new life. Lord, open our eyes. Let us boast in the God of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing <clears throat> our series, God Among Us, and today our theme is that God Among Us brings us hope. Christmas is a story of hope. It's the story of God bringing hope. When Christ came, it was the beginning of God bringing all of his promises from the Old Testament into actuality. It's hope. I love stories of hope. <clears throat> As I was thinking about hope, it reminded me of the hope I had in proposing to my wife. We had been dating for a while, and I decided, like, this is the woman I'm going to marry. But I'm broke, so, you know, I'm saving up every dime I can find. I'm looking under couch cushions, that kind of thing. And finally, I've, I, I save up the quantity of money I believe can buy a ring. <laughs> and... Um, I take a friend of mine with me because he's married and he's done this before to go buy a ring. We, we went and found the, the nicest thing we could find that Zell's outlet had to offer. <laughs> and uh, so the guy that I take with me, his name's Jess, he's got this big like Duck Dynasty beard before that was like a thing. And I'm clean shaven, but I'm, me and him are both big guys. So we're coming in this, uh, this jewelry store and Jess, um, I'm putting on his big meaty fingers every ring and I'm, he's like trying them on and we're like looking at them and I can't imagine what the lady behind the counter was thinking. <laughs> but I know what I was imagining. I was imagining like if this is what Jordan would want. Is it the cut? Is it the style? Is, is it something that when like it came the moment and I popped it open that it would just dazzle her and she might be like blinded by who it was asking, right? <laughs> so for two weeks, that joker is just burning a hole in my pocket. Like it's hot. I'm ready to go, but I've got a plan. I've um, <clears throat> planned that I was going to surprise her with, with a proposal, but I, had, I knew Jordan well enough to know if I'm dressed up nice and we're taking like pictures of being now engaged, Lord willing, um, that she would want to be dressed up nice too. She wouldn't want to like, guys, this is helpful. Don't ambush her when she's in her pajamas. Like 
She'll, she'll want nice pictures too of that day. So I had a friend of mine, his wife um, said that she had some tickets to Bass Hall. They were going to go watch the Nutcracker. And um, she, so she was going to drop her off where I was in, in this real pretty spot in the park. And I was going to pop it open on her. And it was going to be yes and everything was going to be high fives. But earlier that day, I suddenly <coughs> worked into the conversation, like to hedge my back bet, like, so if I were to like propose to you today on a one to 10, because we'd been talking about marriage, it wasn't a new conversation. Like on a one to 10, like what are the odds that you would say yes? 100% no. <laughs> she didn't even go to 10. <laughs> But I was already all in. I was, I was, I was going to make it happen. <laughs> like it was now or never. So I'm, I'm, I drop her off. I go home. And I'm obnoxiously early about everything. So it's like six hours. I go, I don't know why. I put like my suit on. Like I'm getting dressed for game day. I'm ready. I don't even have a tie. So I have to go to my neighbor's house he, he gives me a tie and then realizes that I can't tie the tie, so he ties it for me and puts it on me. Like, that's the stage of life I'm in right now. So I'm sitting on my bed. I'm, I'm looking at that ring for what felt like an eternity, but what I'm, what's going through my mind is, you know, everything, all the implications that the pro, the, 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 proposal and the engagement promised like getting married like what would our home look like what what would she look like when she gets old what would I look like when I get old what what will our kids look like how many kids will we have what will what would we do like what's this going to look like and you're staring at that ring and you're wondering like what what's in store for this So the proposal, it's not the marriage. But for me, it was all my hopes in her being my bride. It was all my hopes in me being her husband. It was, it was the hopes of our future, right? Finally, the moment came that night when I got down on one knee. She got, like, they pull up, and Jordan's, like, confused, and Carrie just, like, stiff arms her out of the car and shuts the door. She's looking like, well, and there, I ambush her. There it is. Pop on one knee. She says yes. But here's the deal. The proposal, it's not the marriage, right? Engagement is not the marriage, those things are just the promise of what is to come. The prophecies in the Old Testament did not bring salvation, but the prophecies were the promise of what God would do. The hope of the prophecies is what the prophets and the people of God had to hang on to until God would, would send Jesus on that first Christmas night. When Christ came, it was the beginning of God bringing all the hopes and promises that he gave us in the Old Testament into actuality. This passage we're going to look at this morning vividly displays the hope that we have in Christ. 
because it's the picture of the new life we have in the Spirit. So Ezekiel 37 shows us how God brings life to those who are spiritually dead by placing His Spirit inside of us. So here's what's true. Salvation is wholly a work of God. It is totally a work of God. So what do we do? And I know this next sentence is super clunky, but it will make sense by the end, Lord willing. And it's this. We are to share the message of salvation because God has chosen to accomplish it through the work of man. So let's, let's look at our passage. And generally, I don't like to uh, give commentary while we read, but the passage is so long, I won't be able to later. So I'm going to point some things out. And um, again, th these we'll, we'll start tying, tying bows here in a little bit. So I just want you to know that if, if you're like, what? Just give me a second, okay? So starting in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, they were many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know, then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you. So notice this word breath. Um, there's a lot of words for breath. Um, this generally is not one of them. This word is ruah, which is previously translated in verse one, spirit. He says, I will put spirit in you. And I'm going to read it like that for the rest of the time. And you shall live. And I will lay sinew upon you and cause flesh to come upon you. And I will cover you with skin and I will put breath. I will put spirit in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and I prophesied and there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had covered them, and, sin, uh, and, and skin had covered them. And behold, there was no spirit in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the spirit. And I believe he's prophesying to the Holy Spirit. Prophesy to the Holy Spirit. Prophesy to the spirit. Son of man, Say to the Spirit, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O Spirit. Because that's a, that's a definite article there. That tells us we're talking to somebody. O Spirit, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the, the Spirit came into them, and they lived, and they stood to their feet, an exceedingly great army. So he's about to tell us how we are to interpret this, Okay. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, <clears throat> they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. 
And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place, in, I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. He promises three times that this is going to happen. Before I get too fired up, let's, let's look at some background. So verses one through three, we're going to see the condition of man. So apart from the work of God in salvation, we are like Israel. We are without, law, we are without hope and we are lost. As Ephesians 2, 1 says, we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Israel, the, the context of, what, of this passage is they'd become defiant to God. In 2 Kings 24, 14, God sent Babylon to punish Israel. They conquered the nation and they took many people into captivity. It's estimated that over uh, 20,000 people were deported to Babylon. And here are the people that they took. They took all the officials... So it, <clears throat> all the families of the officials. So if you're any way related to somebody important, you're gone. Then he took all the, anybody that was skilled labor, if you were some sort of artisan out of Israel. If you are, uh, the, and, oh, I'm sorry. And then the last one was the men of war. So if you're a warrior, you're out. Because they wanted what Israel could produce. They wanted their money, and they didn't want anybody to have any claim to, to, to raise an army against them. So they, they got them all out of there. And this was their punishment to, for the sins that they, they'd done against God. And the king of Babylon set up another king in the place of the one that they had, and they also deported that guy to Babylon. So this prophet, Ezekiel, he's one of these captives. He's in Babylon. He's, he's in this Babylonian captivity. He's in this slavery. Could you imagine the hopelessness of the people in Israel and then the Israelites who had been deported to Babylon? It had to be demoralizing, right? It gets worse. Their national pride was that God's presence dwelt in the temple. And You'll remember in the Holy of Holies, two very specific things. One is the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant is where they place their sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice. Well, God tells us in the book of Ezekiel that that will be no more. It will never be found again. So whenever you're watching some YouTubers say they found the Ark of the Covenant, they're lying. God said they wouldn't find it. So um, it's no more. Well, that also should beg the question, what were they sacrificing to uh, whenever they rebuilt the temple in Nehemiah. And what were they doing for the, the couple hundred years? Well, they were faking it, but that's, that's a story for when we get to the New Testament. And then what's a, the other thing was the presence of God. In Ezekiel chapter 10, we see the presence of God leave the temple. So this is literally the darkest hour in the history of Israel. They have... Their, their men of war had been taken. Their king had been taken. Their nobility had been taken. And the spirit of God had been taken from their presence. Now Ezekiel, he's in Babylon with the rest of Israel. 
And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, takes him and physically sets him down in the middle of a valley. Also, I want you to see that the, the, the Holy Spirit is not a New Testament construct. He's in the Old Testament. He's doing things. So close your eyes and imagine what Ezekiel sees. He's in this desert valley. He's in this dry valley. And he looks around. It's just a wasteland. And there's, there's skeletons all over the place. But we know, because we read further along, how these bodies got here. There was a war. These are the slain bodies of those who were left. They didn't even take the time to bury them or burn them. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of bones spread across this, this valley. Then God proposes a challenge to Ezekiel. Can these bones live? What do we know about dead things? I'm no scientist, but that's right. Dead things stay dead. All a dead thing can do is continue to decompose, right? A dead thing can't go, all right, I'm going to will myself to come back to life. A dead thing can't grab itself by the bootstraps and stand up. A dead corpse is just going to stay dead. The Bible explains that this is the spiritual condition of humanity apart from God. We are in our trespasses dead in our sins. We are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2.1. We, like these corpses, are incapable of making a move towards God. We, like these corpses, are unable, uh, unable of, to, to love God. We, like these corpses... We don't have any capability of obeying God. But that's why God came to us. Ezekiel saw the hopelessness of the situation, but by faith he answered, God, only you know. It looked utterly hopeless, but then God breathed life into the bones. But then God. But then God is the story of all redemptive history. Adam and Eve sinned, but then God covered their sin. God rescued them. Noah was destined for destruction with the rest of the world, but then God delivered him. Abraham was living with the rest of the pagans in Ur, but then God calls him out. Isaac was to be sacrificed, but then God provided a ram in the bush. Israel was enslaved, but then God delivered them. Pharaoh was pursuing them with the army, but then God opened the seas. These bones were dead in this valley. They were very dry. There was no hope, but then God breathed life into them. But then God, but then God, but then God is the story of the Bible. There was no hope of deliverance for us but then God became one of us. But then God put on flesh, but then God sent Jesus, but then God took my punishment and God took your punishment and died on a cross for us. This morning, what we're gonna see is, this is there's, no, there's no hope, but then God chose to move. 
We apart from Christ are these bones. Our situation is hopeless. But then God dwelt among us and he died for us. The, steer, the spiritual state of man is helpless. And we need intervention outside of us ourselves or we will be doomed. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want you to understand that you in your sin are like these bones. You are choosing to reject God and you are choosing to go to hell. But this morning, you're going to hear the gospel. You're going to hear the story of a God who loved you, who paid your price, and is offering salvation to you if you would just believe. You are hopeless, but then God has made a way for you to be with him. Salvation is wholly an act of God. You know, this idea of being spirit, spiritually dead you ever wonder why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, like the Jews, like why they missed Jesus? Like how, how, they, how they didn't get it? Jesus, quoting Isaiah 6, tells us. Um, he says, he actually quotes this passage a variety of ways. In Mark 4.12, talk, he's talking about the people who don't understand. I mean, you gotta realize, Jesus is doing miracles. He's raising people from the dead. He's turning water to wine. Blind people can see, deaf people can hear. Uh, people who are leprous are no longer lepers. Like the, 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 the uh, oral tradition, the only other person, there's only, uh, the, they believe that the Messiah would be able to cure lepers. Jesus shows up and does it. He, he exercises demons. How did they miss this guy if they were looking at what we're looking at? This is what Jesus says, quoting from Isaiah 6. They are seeing and never perceiving, hearing but never understanding. Otherwise they might, and I will forgive them. It's because they were blind and deaf to God. This is why God sends his Holy Spirit to us to illuminate our eyes so that we can see him, to open our ears so we can understand him, to turn our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And we should not be of people who get mad when, when sinners keep sinning. You know why? Because Ephesians 1 tells us that every spiritual blessing is a blessing from above and that we even see God, that we know him, is a blessing from God. It's nothing we've conjured up in ourselves. It's just God pouring out grace after grace after grace on us. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new ruah, spirit. I will put a spirit within you and I will remove your heart of stone from your heart of flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit. Whose spirit? He says, my. Who's speaking? God. God will put his spirit in these people. And now we, we're getting a cause right now. He's about to give us the cause of why he's going to do it. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Apart from God... We can't walk in his ways. Apart from God, we can't keep his statutes. We can't keep his rules. 
That's why he gives us the spirit. Everything that you do that's honorful, honoring and, and worshipful to God, that is the spirit moving in you. That's how you know the spirit's alive in you. The salvation that Jesus is offering is impossible apart from the work of the Spirit. Isn't it bizarre in, in John 16, Jesus tells us that he's got to go away so that someone better might come. Who would be better than Jesus? He says, I will send this helper. I'll send the Holy Spirit. And what will the Holy Spirit do? The Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will open our eyes to the things to come. He will open our eyes to the reality of God. If you're a believer here today, that's what the Spirit's done for you. He opened your ears. He opened your eyes. He, he changed your heart. He gave you a new heart that's able to worship Him. We call this regeneration. He regenerated you. He made you new. In Christ, we have the Holy Spirit giving us new life and working in us. And if salvation were by our own ability, these dead bones right here would have stayed dead. But then God gave us life. Check this out. This is just one more bonus, bonus round. If, if salvation is just something that you say, I'm saved today, and then tomorrow you're like, I'm not saved. That's not really miraculous, right? Like, that's just a decision. But you got to understand that salvation is a greater miracle. This, the Holy Spirit coming into you. Like, everybody wants to look at the, the, the sea parting and be like, oh, that's a miracle right there. Person no longer a leper, that's a miracle right there. But the miracle that the whole Bible's building to is this. That he turns people who are spiritually dead into people who are now living and walking and breathing for him. That we are regenerated. And Ephes uh, not Ephesians, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 31, 31 through 39 shows that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And that includes you. You can't undo the miracle of God. What God has done, man cannot undo. You're not more powerful than God. Whatever that sin is, if you're a believer that's in your life, Ezekiel 36, 26 has told us, why did he give us our, his spirit? So that we would walk in obedience and we would keep his statutes. So many Christians, they're just burdened with anxieties and unhappiness and bitterness. And for most of these people, it's a matter of them walking in a sin. Because the Bible promises joy to those who are saved. It does. But we forfeit our joy when we are unwilling to let go of our pet sin. The God that lives in you, that dwells in you, is more powerful than your addiction. He's more powerful than your sadness. He's more powerful than whatever the thing is. Why did he say he will give us his spirit? To cause us to obey his commandments and to walk in his statutes.
There's hope. You don't have to live in that. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one might boast. God has made salvation such that you're not saved because you're better or worse than someone else. You're saved because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. You're saved because you have faith in the work that he's done. Salvation, this salvation is not because you're awesome. Salvation is because God is awesome. It's like the psalmist says, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. If you want to boast in your salvation, you boast in God. And Christmas is when we boast in the God of our salvation. Christmas is the story of, of hope. And apart from Christ, you equivocally, unequivocally have no hope. Man's condition is no longer hopeless because now, because Christ came and the Holy Spirit lives, our condition now is the condition of hope. So let's look at now at verses 10, uh, 4 through 10. We're going to see that God brings life through the words of his prophets. So now shift your mind from being the dead bones to put yourself in the sandals of Ezekiel. Have you ever seen uh, Frankenstein or a remake of Frankenstein? My favorite's the Bugs Bunny one. <laughs> so just information that I learned, I'll pass it on to you. This has nothing to do with a whole lot. But Frankenstein's not the monster. Uh, Victor Frankenstein's the scientist who makes the monster. And so what he does is he sews all these dead pieces of people back together and makes this, makes this person. And um, he's got his little friend Igor in the corner. You know, they, they, he makes this whole contraption, lays this kind of, and he needs lightning to bring life into that thing. So we, we know how it goes, right? Um, the Igor's over there. He's like, yes, master. <laughs> that was my best shot at it, my bad. <laughs> the lightning strikes and he flips the switch we all know what comes next, right? It's alive! So, you know, Frankenstein, or the monster thing, comes to life, and he goes on to terrorize the village and kill a lot of people. Not the point. The point is that uh, the story, in that story, that something external had to happen in order to, for life to come to that, that, that dead corpse, right? Something external had to take place. In verse 7... God gives a command for Ezekiel to prophesy over these bones. And he does, and then the bones come together. And it, 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 all of a sudden, things start happening, and there he sees standing before him a vast army of people. How weird would that be? This story is bizarre. So God, again, told Ezekiel to prophesy for the spirit to fill their lungs and that they would have life. Life then came into the bodies and, and God raised this army to life. Verse 14 tells us exactly how we are to interpret this. So we have the story in verses um, 1 through 10 and then God gives us the interpretation of what we see in, verses, uh, in verse 14. 
And he says, you know, that's the nation of Israel and that I will put my spirit within you so that you shall live. This, this conversation starts in chapter 36. That's why I keep pointing back that he's promising that he's going to give us a new heart. So here's a question that you need to answer. Did Ezekiel give these bones life? No, obviously he didn't. That's way beyond his capacity. What was Ezekiel's job? To prophesy. What's a less churchy way to say it? Speak. His job was to speak. Ezekiel was a prophet, and his job is to be the mouthpiece of God. Notice when Ezekiel get, got his message, what he didn't do. He didn't say, hey, God, this message I feel like is going to offend some of these bones over here. He didn't say, hey, God, um, I don't think these bones over here are really the bones we're going after. These bones over here remind me a little bit more of myself. They look a little bit more like me, and I think when they come to life, they'll end up sounding a little bit more like me. I think, I think this is a better crop of bones over here. That's not what he did, right? He didn't say, hey, God, let me reimagine what you said. Hey, God, let me reinterpret how you said it and say it just a little bit better. That's not what he did, is it? God, this, this wrath stuff, I think, is going to make the bones feel uncomfortable. Let me take that out. None of those things are his job, and none of those things are your job either. The role of the prophet is to plant his feet firmly and to clearly state what God has clearly stated in his word. Your job is to be the prophet. Now, everybody wants, people hear the prophet and they want to start making weird end time guesses. They want to say some weird things, some obscure words to make someone feel like, oh, that guy's got it going on. What does the prophet do? He plants his feet and he clearly stands on what has been said. He stands on the word of God and he speaks thus. Ezekiel, he stood over the bones, he prophesied, he spoke the word of God that was clearly given to him. And God gave life. That's our call. This bringing life should remind you of another story in the Bible. Um, should take your mind to Genesis 2. Think about how different these two situations are. So in Genesis 2, God makes this world. It's beautiful. He makes a garden. I would imagine in flowers and apples. And like, it's beautiful. It's like the perfect, most perfectest garden that's ever existed. Then God, I can imagine he kneels down from the dirt, forms Adam. And what's he do? He breathed life into him. Then everything's great. Adam goes along, like you can almost see him skipping through the meadow, naming animals. That's not what takes place in Ezekiel. There's, in Ezekiel 37, it's a twofold creation narrative just like that. But what's different, this story starts with what's been distorted. This story starts with what's been corrupted. This story starts with bodies that have been slain. They've been distorted and corrupted by the fall. 
and God brings the bones back together. God fixes what's been broken. He forms their bodies. And this time, what's different? Does God breathe life into their bodies? He doesn't. Instead, he chooses a life-giving agent to speak over these people. Then God sends his Holy Spirit in them to give them life. God sent Ruah in Genesis 2. I really want to make the point that this is the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 2, when God breathes into the lungs of Adam, you would think it would be Ruah, right? That he would breathe in spirit? Nope. The word is nisha, uh, nashima. It just means like wind in your lungs. It's different. These are two different life-giving acts. Ezekiel speaks, and then God breathes life into this army. And I want you to hear the question posed to Ezekiel today. Can these bones live? Can these bones live? What's your heart saying? Surely somebody's popped in your mind. Our job is not to give life. That's what the Spirit of God does. And John 3 tells us he blows where he wills. That's so far out of our capacity, it's impossible. Our job is to speak life, to speak the word of God over those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. God's job is to illuminate and to give life. God's not asking you to, to, to give life to anyone. What he's asking you to do, and I want to say it as clearly as I can say it, what you're called to do is open your mouth and speak. Well, Cody, my spiritual gift is in evangelism. Let's imagine all, the, all of our ladies are taking trash out and washing dishes and I'm standing there. And I go, I wish my spiritual gift was service. <laughs> that doesn't work, does it? Your spiritual gift may not be evangelism, but we're all called to evangelism. It's not your job to worry about the outcome. Because when we're worried about the outcome, what we're really... You're saying, my spiritual gift is in evangelism, therefore I won't. But what you're really saying is, I don't want to get rejected by that person. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting God. He is king no matter what. Your job is to be a loyal servant and to open your mouth and to speak. Can these bones live? Imagine how bleak that question looked to, God, to Ezekiel when God asked him. When you think about the darkness and the depravity and the corruption and the utter lostness of our nation, I want you to hear God asking you this question. Can these bones live? Can these people put their faith and trust in Jesus? Do you believe that God can change the face of our nation? Do you believe that God can bring life into this culture of death and darkness? Honestly answer the question because if you even have a hint of no, you should feel the rebuke of God. 
God's asking, can these bones live? We should all respond as Ezekiel, God, only you know. But let's get a little closer to our table. Christmas is coming and we got to deal with a lot of people right now. Maybe it's that family member that you think is just too far to believe, but you know they're lost. Can these bones live? Maybe it's um, that, that cousin or uncle who every third word is a cuss word whenever uh, he speaks, and anytime he hears the name of God, he's just enraged. Can these bones live? Maybe it's that, that nephew who's now transgender or that aunt who's gay. God is asking you the question, can these bones live? Our response should be as Ezekiel. God only you know. The condition of man is utterly hopeless without God. The condition of all men is, is that they're not too far outside of God's reach. If you don't believe God can save them, this is what you're declaring about God, that he's not powerful enough, that he's unable, that he's impotent, that he in fact is not God. That's what your silence speaks. No, no one is too far from the reach of God. Nothing is impossible for God. I want you to know that there's nothing outside, no one outside of God's capability of saving. But before you see God do anything, you will have to be willing by faith to believe that he can. But here's the thing. Faith is always accompanied by action. Faith is always accompanied by action. It would be a Western lie to separate the two. Faith and action in the Bible are one thing. James says, I will know your faith by your works. Not that your faith saves you. Faith is proof of work. Uh, 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 works are proof of faith. If you say, yes, I believe that these, these bones can live, and God, I believe that you can penetrate the, God, the, the darkness. God, I believe that your message can change people. But you sit in your chair, you watch the news, you watch Netflix, and you never do anything. You know what's not going to happen? Nothing's going to change. Life will not come. God is not asking you to give life. He's asking you to speak life, and God will take care of the rest. Salvation is totally and wholly an act of God, but he only does his work of salvation through the act of man. Let's finally, let's look at verse 11 through 14. God promises a land. God gives Ezekiel one last prophecy, and this prophecy is the story of the house of Israel, and it's the picture of the new covenant that's coming. The prophecy that he's giving here is just as unlikely to happen as the dry bones coming to life because Israel is just as spiritually dead as those were physically dead. He says he's going to call them out of their graves. He's speaking to people who are alive. 
Even still, it goes further. God prophesied through Ezekiel that he would raise them out of their graves and he would place his spirit in them. So there's two important things I want you to see about the work of the Holy Spirit here. First, the Holy Spirit gives new life. And second, when, a spirit, when the Spirit comes on a person, verse 14 says not only are we receiving a God-given life, but also we have a new home. Have you ever been in one of those seasons where you couldn't imagine another thing going wrong? Loss of job, sick aging parents, sick children, um, bills are higher than money, um, another car broke down, name it. I don't have to convince anyone that this world is not as it should be, right? In Christ, there is a place prepared for you that's better than the place that you're in. And he tells us that he's going to prepare that place so that we can anxiously await it. Last story, then I'll close. A few years ago, Jordan and I, we won a seven-day trip to the Bahamas. We won it. We put our name in a raffle. They drew our name. It was ours. It was a free trip, so I wasn't complaining that it was in the off-season. Um... On that trip, Florida and the Bahamas had received record rainfall. Like there had never been a time in the history of Florida that they had not received that much rain. So we got to be a part of that record being broken. So we show up to, this, to the, the port. I don't like ships. I like a bass boat. I don't like a ship. Um, we get there and it looks like we're getting on an oversized minnow bucket. Like, you know, from Gilligan's Isle. It's only, it's only like a six-mile trip, but we, they got to stay overnight, and it's storming, so like it's rocky. It, doesn't, it feels like it's about to be a three-hour tour that lasts a lifetime. And um, so we finally get there. It's just nasty weather, but we got a sweet hotel room. Who cares that you don't have a beach? You're in the Bahamas. You got a sweet hotel room. Well, so it was a, two overnight, so that would make five days there. So only one day was it not raining. We go out there, and we get just blistered. But the other days, we were lucky enough to have that sweet hotel room that did not have electricity. <laughs> it was somehow, amazingly, raining hot and with 1,000% humidity. And I don't want to be a complainer. But I do like to make fun of things. But I don't like being gone anyway. So like, by the time that we fly out, I'm already ready to be home. And the whole time we're there, um, the trip's not as it should be. But I know that there's a place prepared for me. There's a place that's got my chair. There's a place that's got my bed. There's a place that's got my dog. And I'm ready to be back in that place. And I'm anxiously awaiting my return. This place is not as it should be. And we should be anxiously awaiting his return. Those who God has given his spirit, God has given a home. God's desire, he tells us over 40 times in the Bible, is that my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I want to fast forward through verse, uh, chapter 37 to the culmination of this new covenant promise in, in 3724, and I'll read it very quickly. It says this, my servant David, 
shall be king over them. That's talking about Jesus. And they shall have one shepherd. It's Jesus. And they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Who does that? The Holy Spirit. And they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, that's Jesus, shall be their prince forever, culminating in verse 27. And my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The climax of the Bible is not the cross. The climax of the Bible is also the conclusion. When God finally brings us to himself, he gets rid of all the old, he brings down a new heaven and a new earth. And God dwells among us and there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more death. And the tears that you have, God promises in Revelation 21 that he himself will be the, ones to, the one to wipe those out of your eyes. This is the picture of the new covenant. This is the picture of what we're hoping for. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, this is the promise that's being offered to you. This is the promise of salvation. And if you're here today and you're a believer, this is the challenge. It's very simple. Hear the question, can these bones live? Right now we're going to pray and we're going to have a moment of response and we're going to then take the Lord's Supper. But I want you to understand that that's the call. Can these bones live? What's your answer going to be?